Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Welcome to Always on EM, a podcast from the Mayo Clinic Department of Emergency Medicine. My name is Venk Belamkanda. I am a host of the show with my partner, Dr. Alex Finch. If you're new to the show, in the middle of each month, we share a Grand Rounds recording with you all, and this one is a great one. Before I tell you more about it, though, please take a moment to follow our show and drop a comment about your experience if you could. Your endorsement will help us reach more people around the world and know that we're doing a great job for you. To that end, we want to give a special thank you and shout out to Dr. Brent Beckner, a clinical pharmacist in critical care and emergency medicine in Nebraska. He recently started listening to our show and shared with us the great experience he had learning about accidental hypothermia. That was a fantastic episode, and if you haven't listened to some of the truly remarkable stories within it, you should definitely go listen after listening to this episode. But of course, first, finish this one. Today's wonderful speaker is Dr. Shannon McNamara. She is an expert in emergency medicine, medical simulation, and medical education. She received her medical degree from Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and went on to finish residency in emergency medicine through the Temple University Hospital. She completed a medical simulation fellowship at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in New York City and has subsequently led the Emergency Medicine Simulation Division within Mount Sinai St. Luke's Hospital System and then later that same role within the New York University Langone Health System. She focuses her academic work on improving medical education and healthcare systems through medical simulation, and she has a special focus on increasing or elevating patient safety. As a result, In May of this past year, she gave a fantastic presentation to our group entitled Moving from Safety 1 to Safety 2, a Paradigm Shift to Improve Performance in a Complex World. I can't wait for her message to reach you and your patients. So, Dr. McNamara, take it away. Good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for having me here. Um, I'm really excited to be joining you virtually. Um, And so today I want to talk about... um, some really cool science. Um, So as you heard, I've been involved in emergency medicine and simulation for um, probably over the last 10 years. Um, And I found some really cool science um, about safety and improving performance. Um, I did, ironically, through the beauty of social media. Um, The challenge here, I find, is telling the story of the science. So um, I'm going to talk about uh, a few different things. So, but mostly we're going to focus on storytelling today. Um, I have no financial disclosures. Um, so our objectives today, we're going to talk about paradigms in patient safety. So we're going to talk about how we think uh, or what the mainstream paradigm in uh, patient safety in emergency medicine is. Um, and we're going to talk about why that's not working. Um, and we're going to talk about an alternative paradigm, a different way of thinking about safety. And not just in the theoretical realm, but how you can apply this in your daily practice. Um, I sent Sue a link to all the slides, references, and handout. Um, so you can take notes, but this will all be available as well. Um, so this is the cool science that I'm talking about today. Um, this is a paper that you can download and read for free um, from some great safety scientists called Safety 1 to Safety 2, a white paper. And in this paper, they're describing this shift in paradigm in patient safety. Um, Robert Wares is um, 
someone whose scholarship I admire tremendously. Um, he was an emergency physician who did a lot of, I think he had a PhD in industrial safety. Um, he unfortunately passed away a few years ago, um, but he was also involved in simulation. And his work has been transformative for me. Um, so you can read this paper. It's a great paper. Um, that said, it took me several years to figure out what they were talking about. Um, so my goal today is to add some story and meaning to that science so that when you go to it, it makes a lot more sense. It's more digestible. Um, so today we're going to talk about well, the story in three acts, if you will. Um, so at first, I want to think about um, learning medicine, um, you know, that first experience of resuscitation, how awesome it is, how terrifying it can be, um, and then how I found simulation and what that meant for me. Um, and then learning about patient safety and entering that world. Um, then we're gonna go move on to digging into some safety science. Um, and then ultimately we're gonna talk about complexity, what that means, um, why it matters and what we do with it. So let's think, I want you to think about um, let's, we're going to start the story with the resuscitation feelings roller coaster. So I want you to think about one of the first times you did a successful resuscitation. So you have a patient come in critically ill, maybe in cardiac arrest, the team jumps to action, you do all the things that you do, and that patient makes it out of the room healthier than when they came in and hopefully, you know, leaving the hospital um, doing well. I remember the first time I met someone that I'd resuscitated from cardiac arrest. Um, you know, walking into that uh, curtain in the emergency department and looking at someone thinking, the last time I saw you, you were dead. And now you're alive and eating a cheeseburger. This is crazy. Um, you know, what we can do with resuscitation technology is absolutely amazing. And it feels amazing. Um, you know, it feels kind of like magic. I get that like, um, tingly feeling all over, like, wow, we just saved somebody's life. This is the extremely cool part of emergency medicine. And um, at Temple, where I was a resident, we did a lot of resuscitation. Um, and I was always kind of chasing that feeling, like, how do we do this well so that our patients do well? And that was my motivation. And um, I, I imagine it is for many of you. Um, but like I said, resuscitation is a roller coaster. So um, a, a story that I think about frequently is when I walked into the ICU on one of my day shifts and one of the residents turned to me from overnight and said, I bet you'll never guess who died last night. And that encounter to that tingly good feeling, my heart just dropped into my stomach um, with that dread of you know, who, who died? What could I have done differently? Is there anything we could have done to prevent that? Um, and, you know, I think we've all had that experience. You know, sometimes we think about um, medicine or resuscitation as fighting off death and our job is to keep it away. Um, but the reality is that it doesn't always work and our patients don't always do well. Um, and this is a big challenge, you know, negotiating this emotional roller coaster of being a resuscitationist. Sometimes, People do well, sometimes they don't. Um, and what do we do with that? So the next step for me when I graduated, um, I went to do a simulation fellowship. So um, I loved resuscitation. I wanted to get better at it. I love teaching. I love technology. And I thought, perfect, I'll go do simulation and learn how that works. 
And it was great. Um, I loved learning all about that. Um, what I didn't realize at the time that I signed up to do a patient safety, or <laughs> I didn't realize um, that I was joining up with a patient safety team. Um, you know, I thought resuscitation was very cool. Um, simulation was like medium cool, pretty nerdy. Patient safety felt definitively uncool. I think anytime something said patient safety on it, I completely lost interest. Um, and that, you know, countering that with the fact that, of course, I wanted my patients to do well. I wanted my patients to be safe. But there was something about the world of the discipline of patient safety that didn't um, feel very appealing. But I said, okay, I will, uh, you know, I'm, I've been told simulation is a patient safety thing. I'm going to get into it. Um, and so my fellowship director signed me up for the root cause analysis committee in our hospital to kind of do more patient safety work. Um, and that, that was where we did our formal institutional adverse event analysis. And I'm sure you've all had experiences with this, these types of things. Sometimes it's an RCA, maybe it's an M&M, &M, um, case presentations, peer reviews, every institution calls it something differently, but we all have a process where if something bad happens, we learn about it. Um, and in the meetings at this hospital, you know, we'd show up and get lots of handouts from risk management that had these timelines on them where, you know, something bad happened at the end, but we're backtracking and seeing what, what was the timeline? How, where did it start? Why did these things happen? And then um, as we went through it, we'd try to figure out what went wrong, how can we prevent it? Because we don't want our patient, we don't want bad things to happen. We all want good things to happen. Um, that's the goal. And so this was our strategy for learning from what happened to help things get better, to improve performance. And there were some unspoken assumptions in that process. So we assumed that bad things happened when something went wrong. So someone did something wrong, something went wrong, that's why the bad thing happened. Um, we assumed that there was a clear right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. So if something happened unexpected, we might say, ooh, that was not the right choice, that violated policy or procedure. Um, we assumed we could write out this timeline, take it apart, figure out what went wrong based on um, that kind of deconstruction. And we assumed that we could change something, we could make a corrective action. So maybe we would have a new protocol or new policy or something to make us safer. And so these are some of those ideas, um, you know, around causality, bimodality, decomposability, um, rules, limiting wrong actions will prevent harm. That was our goal, you know, prevent harm, which is a good goal. Um, this is the mainstream paradigm that I'm talking about. So don't get too attached to it because we're going to mess with it a little bit. So at the time, I'm a simulation fellow. I'm on the RCA committee. I say, OK, so I'm learning from this process. Let me apply that in my simulation cases. Um, and so we'll do it kind of like a pre-RCA. We'll talk about the right way, the wrong way. We'll break down our actions in the case. We'll see why things happened. We'll kind of create rules for ourselves, make it work better. Um, so a case I love to run is a um, tachyarrhythmia case. So stable or Ventricular tachycardia is an amazing sim case because the monitor's beeping, you've got a waveform, um, you can put the pads on the patient, maybe you can play with the defibrillator. Everybody loves to push the button, so we get to all push the button. Um, and it, it's a good, there's a good amount of movement. It makes for some good simulation and it's, it's a rare event, but that you wanna be really ready for. So we did a case where we were, um, the goal was to talk about giving procainamide because, um, as you know, in ACLS, we often will give amiodarone. We're pretty familiar with that, um, but there's some data that procainamide may be a 
more effective antiarrhythmic. Um, so the goal of the case was go through stable to unstable VTAC, give some uh, meds, do some shocks, talk about it. So we ran the case. I remember one with a senior resident, he decided, oh, let's grab some amiodarone from the code cart, give it to the patient, um, doesn't work. Okay, we'll do a shock, great. So we're doing our debrief. And I said, you know, I saw the things that you did and I wonder, you know, there's some data out there that procainamide might be better. Have you ever thought about that? And he looked at me and said, I mean, sure, I've read that data too, but have you ever tried to give procainamide in this emergency department? And I said, no, actually I haven't, um, good point. I said, well, yeah, I, I read that paper and I thought, why don't I do that? And then I tried to do it. And um, turns out if you want to give procainamide, you have to order it in the computer, then the nurse has to approve it, then the pharmacist has to approve it, then someone has to go up to the pharmacy and get it and bring it down to the patient. And that takes like 30 minutes at least. So if I've got a patient in stable VTAC or unstable VTAC, I don't wanna give them, um, I don't wanna wait 30 minutes for the best medicine. I'd rather just give them the medicine that I have right now. And I have this medicine here. So I'm gonna give the amiodarone. And I said, that makes complete sense. Um, I totally see what you did there. And that wasn't the point of my, case, but I was learning more from that learner than I was teaching at that time. And what, what that helped me focus on was this gap. Um, so there's the ideal world, maybe what the by the book world, the protocol, the ACLS card, the pile. I don't know if you still have a stack of emails, but I you know, in every hospital I worked at, I would get emails every week about this new protocol or that new protocol. Um, and then I would try to implement the protocol. And like, I'm pulling up my email in the middle of the ER and if there's patients everywhere and someone's vomiting in the corner and um, trying to call the hospitalist to do this new admission protocol. And the reality is always a lot different than the book. Um, sure, it sounds great to give procainamide, but is that really feasible? Um, and this, once I started paying attention to this gap, I saw it everywhere and I got a little bit obsessed with it. Um, Cause what I was noticing was that a lot of people weren't acknowledging that this gap existed and this gap felt really important. And this took me to the world of um, more industrial safety. So we're leaving the world of U.S. patient safety. And now we're looking more at the world of global industrial safety science. Very cool world. So in that world, there were people talking about this gap and they were talking about, you know, why is it there? What do we do with it? So Eric Holnagel, one of the authors on the paper I showed at the beginning, um, talks a lot about this gap. And he notes that there are a few constants in the world. So it is a given that resources are always limited. We never have enough time. We never have enough money. We never have enough staff. It's a given. Change is constant. As soon as you know how something works, it's going to change. And I think anyone who's worked in a hospital would agree, resources are always limited. Change is constant. So, you know, wondering what drug are we going to be out of today um, and how are we going to adapt? So what do people do in this world if we assume Resources are, resources are limited and change is constant. How do we make things work? How do we, how do we bridge that gap? And Holnagel talks about this in a model of the efficiency thoroughness trade-off or the ETTO principle. And um, how do we make things work? We make trade-offs. So we make, we decide what's more important. Do we need to be more efficient 
or do we need to be more thorough? Um, and I think there's a lot of great examples of how we do this in emergency medicine, and we actually tend to be very good at this. So think about your uh, pulmonary embolism workup. So which patients can have the efficient workup? Who can have a, you know, a PERC rule out? Who can get a D-dimer? And who needs that more thorough test, the CT angio, to actually really look throughout the lungs and see if they have a clot? And so when you're seeing those patients and thinking, okay, I'm thinking about pulmonary embolism, how am I going to do my diagnostics? You're making, you're deciding on trade-offs. What's more important? Um, I think about this with uh, internal medicine folks in the emergency department. Whenever I'm training IM residents, I feel like it's my job to teach them about um, working more on the side of efficiency as opposed to thoroughness. So what's an ED workup? What's an outpatient workup? What's an inpatient workup? Um, where, how are we going to move our resources around um, to make things work? Um, and I think talking about trade-offs is huge uh, because uh, emergency clinicians especially are very good at making wise trade-offs. Um, and I think that's really the art of a big part of the art of emergency medicine. So along with this ETTO principle, um, Holnagel talks about the ETTO fallacy. So the fallacy is thinking that you have to be both efficient and thorough at the same time. Other, in other words, don't make trade-offs. Making trade-offs is bad. Or with hindsight, you made the wrong trade-off. So looking back up, oh, you did make a trade-off, but you made the wrong one. This is a fallacy um, because that's not how things work. Um, and yet I was seeing this come up a lot in our adverse event analyses. So we're looking through, someone makes a trade-off and we're saying, oh, shouldn't have made a trade-off and ignoring the reality that they had to make a trade-off or, oh, you made the wrong trade-off and ignoring the reality that they didn't know what we know now then. Um, and the more important question was, how did they decide to make a trade-off and why, what was going on at that time that made that make sense. Um, so this language around trade-offs, I found really, really helpful in the safety literature. Um, some more language and framing that I really appreciate from the industrial safety world um, is this concept of work as done. So work as done, you see at the center, we've got an anesthesiologist taking care of a patient. Um, so some people say work as done is the only real thing. That's the work you're doing at the bedside. That is real and that's what's important. And when we're talking about safety, that's the reality we want to talk about. But as you can see down a little bit to the right, there's the person doing simulation. Simulation or work as simulated, we're approximating the work as done. And we spend a lot of time in sim thinking about this. How are we going to approximate it um, to be as realistic and helpful as possible? But that, that work is simulated. That's a story we're telling about the work as done. It's not the work as done. And that goes the same for the work as observed. So if someone's watching us do our work, the story they're telling about the work, how we document, um, how we claim in a legal suit, how our administrators imagine what we're doing, or the work is abstracted, how we're writing it down. So all of these stories are an approximation of the work that's happening. And framing this as um, 
work folk, the focus being on the work is done was also really important and eye eye opening for me. So if we're saying work is done is the only real thing and we want to get as close to it as possible, you know, there's a gap here too between these things. So in our simulation departments, I was working on a hospital collaborative with a bunch of New York hospitals and we said um, on a patient safety collaborative. And we said, hey, you know, let's bring our simulation to the bedside. If we want to get closer to the work as done, let's bring our simulation to the emergency department. So we did. Um, uh, this is just a generic recess room, um, but we brought our mannequins to the recess room. So we're working with the clinical staff in the clinical space with the equipment um, and we're running cases um, as close to what our cases look like as possible. So if we're going to run that ventricular tachycardia case, and I'm going to come in and say, you know, how do we use procainamide? It's not going to be me saying, standing there with my finger saying, you should all do this. It's going to be asking, where is the procainamide and who gives it and how do we order it? And how does it run? And, you know, what is this process and how does this work? Um, and having a conversation interprofessionally about our processes and our protocols. Um, and I love doing in situ simulation, that simulation in the, in the room. Can't say enough good things about it. While we were doing that, though, an interesting thing happened um, where, you know, it's a lot of work to show up with a sim team, with the, the mannequins and the monitors and all the things to simulate a resuscitation to debrief. Sometimes we'd show up and we'd go early in the morning. So we'd get day shift and night shift. So we're showing up around seven. Um, and then there would, a, a resuscitation would roll in. So I remember one day we were doing a, a STEMI um, practice case and a STEMI rolled in <laughs> as we were about to start. So we canceled the simulation and ran the case. Um, and this happened not infrequently. And so our SIM collaborative got together and said, you know, why don't we just debrief the resuscitations, the real ones. Um, what would it look like if we didn't simulate the resuscitation, we just debriefed what was already happening? So we said, all right, let's try that. Um, so it, I don't know how much of you guys know about simulation, but we tend to be really obsessed with debriefing. Um, and so we thought, what's the best way to debrief these real cases, real people, real feelings? Um, what should we do? So we went with a very simple approach let's just, let's make it, you know, this is for learning. We do a brief, pre-brief to say, you know, we're gonna spend five, 10 minutes talking about this. Let's get everybody's names and roles. Let's talk about what happened. And then let's, you know, do a simple, what we call plus Delta. Let's talk about what worked well and let's talk about what we would like to change in the future. And what surprised me when I started debriefing was that I thought that I would get a lot out of the plus Delta. I really wanted to hear the staff's, um, perspectives, like what's working, what's not working, what do you think? But what I ended up learning the most from was just hearing what happened. So the we would get everybody's name, talk about the case, and just talk about everyone's roles in the room and what everyone was doing. And even if I was an observer standing in the background trying to take everything in, I was missing stuff. You know, there's almost no way to know everything that's happening in, happening in a recess room in one moment. No one person can hold all that information. So debriefing about just what was happening was tremendously useful. I, I love also love doing that debriefing after cases, really fantastic. Um, you know, so. We're, we're talking about what happens, we're focusing more on how things work, why it happens. And then a big question that came up was folks asking, which cases should we debrief? Um, you know, and 
we would often debrief cardiac arrest cases. Um, but a lot of folks were saying, uh, you know, I'm worried that, you know, we do this recess, we call time of death, and then, you know, we, we step over to the side and debrief. How's everybody going to feel about that? I don't want to make people feel like it's their fault or that um, they caused this event. So how do I debrief that? And we said, oh, well, it, if you're just starting, you know, try debriefing airways that go well. So you have a routine airway, everything goes well, the patient's sedated, really simple, and just talk about what happened in the airway. Really easy, just do that. Um, and that actually worked great. And as I was debriefing good airways, debriefing codes, debriefing codes that went well, debriefing codes that didn't go so well, um, I realized, you know, in trying to figure out how am I gonna debrief this differently based on the patient outcome? On the one hand, I do wanna be really attentive to people's feelings. So if a patient just died and people are feeling upset, I absolutely don't wanna make them feel like it's their fault because it very likely is not. Um, but then wondering, am I gonna actually, besides attending to emotions, am I actually gonna debrief the case differently? Am I gonna talk about it any differently? And I think that brought me to a big theoretical question of do things that go right and things that go wrong happen in different ways? I'm gonna say that again, because I think this is a like a cornerstone of how we're thinking about safety. Do things that go right and things that go wrong happen in different ways? And in our adverse event analysis work, we were assuming that they went differently. So if something bad happened, um, it was because something went wrong. So we had to figure out what went wrong so that it wouldn't happen again. So figure out the right way to do things, make that easier, figure out what happened wrong and make that go away so that bad things don't happen. Um, and though really well-intentioned, when we're thinking about the right way, we already know that in these complex environments where we're working, that ideal right way isn't a real thing. You know, it's a great idea, but we, we rarely see it. Um, reality it involves a lot more change and we have to adapt more in this world of limited resources and constant change, we're always having to adapt. So what the safety science was talking about was that performance variability is the reason that things go right and the reason that things go wrong. So if we're going back to this, somebody might say, oh, I see why something bad happened. You know, they turned toward orange instead of red, or they turned toward orange instead of green. That's, that's what happened. But in reality, we always have to adapt. Adaption is how things work. So that adaption and performance variability is why things go right and why things go wrong, but it's also why things work. And this was a really key unlock for me in figuring out how to make more progress on performance. So here's our mainstream perspective on patient safety that I was learning. Um, it's not working very well. It wasn't really applying to the clinical resuscitation, debriefing, simulation work I was doing. And so I'm a few years out of residency and I'm struggling to get the kind of what I'm seeing in the recess room, what I'm reading in the safety science literature, and what I'm seeing in the patient safety world, trying to make that all come together. Um, and trying to figure out what is going on here? Why isn't this stuff jiving? It seems like we should, this all should make sense, but it, it's not. So what's going on? And what I realized is that we have to think about safety differently. The rules I was learning, all these things, 
those do apply in some situations, particularly in linear mechanical systems. So if we think about, think about an old clock um, or like an old pocket watch, it does follow those safety rules. If it works when all the pieces are working together, when it doesn't work, when something's broken, you can take it apart find the broken piece, then put it back together, and then it'll work again. So those principles absolutely work for a clock. Turns out healthcare, not a clock. Um, we are a complex system. We're not a linear mechanical system. So now we're going to jump into the world of complex systems, and we're going to spend um, a big chunk of time on this, trying to make sense of it, because it is very like theoretical up here. So I want to try to make it more um, understandable. And then we're going to bring it back to some practical things that um, we can learn about. So what is a complex system? Um, healthcare is a complex system. An ecosystem like this Arctic penguin colony is a complex system. Um, our bodies are a complex system. A city is a complex system. They're dynamic. They're interdependent moving parts. There's nonlinear interactions and emergent properties. We're going to really dig in on that in a little bit. They're impossible to predict. The conditions and the environment matters. They're adaptive, they change, and they can learn and have memory. So I love this quote. A jumbo jet is complicated, but a mayonnaise is complex. Um, so Paul Silliers is a complexity theorist. Um, so, uh, some of the reading I've done says, you know, if you put something in a warehouse for 10 years and then you come back and it's the same, then it's complicated. But if you put something complex like a mayonnaise in a warehouse for 10 years or an emergency department or a penguin colony, when you come back 10 years later, it is not going to be the same. It's going to be very different. It's very dynamic. Um, and we're really talking about different kinds of physics. So an airplane, we're talking more Newtonian physics. So laws of motion, gravity, kick a ball and it rolls down a hill. That is all true. And when we're talking mayonnaise, we're talking like particle physics with emulsion. So when you take water and oil and an egg and you mix them all together, you get a mayonnaise, which is different. But you cannot take it apart to get the water and the oil and the mayonnaise or and the egg back. Um, and it's it's a different kind of physics. So we're talking about different worlds here. Um, now I'm not saying that you're a mayonnaise, but we'll we'll dig into that a little bit more. So in the business world or the management world, sometimes people use the Stacy matrix to talk about complexity. So graphing certainty versus agreement and moving from simple, complicated to complex. Um, there's also the Sinefin framework. This is talking about problem solving with cause and effect. So you know, known, knowable, complex, chaotic. In the known world, cause and effect is really obvious. Um, and that might be more of our linear kick-a-ball world. Um, in B, it's in, there's the knowable world where cause and effect is discoverable. And there's the complex world where cause and effect is coherent in retrospect, but maybe not in the moment. And that's the world that we're dealing with. So a, a big key part of that is thinking about emergent phenomenon. So this is a concept that I wanna dig into a little more because it takes some time to wrap your brain around. So emergent phenomena are complex, decentralized global behavior caused by the interaction of simple ro local rules. And we're gonna talk about some examples of that. In an emergent phenomena, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And I would argue that resuscitation is an emergent phenomenon. So you've got your recess room, take a patient, they're very sick, you put them in the room, you do the resuscitation, they come out of the room, and hopefully they're better. And that resuscitation that's happening, that's the part 
that's greater than the sum of its parts. And the people and the equipment and all that, those are the parts. So to talk about emergence and get an idea of it, I'm gonna leave the hospital for a minute and talk about birds. They make a great model for understanding emergence. So this is a picture of a starling murmuration. Um, it is an example of this emergence where it's complex, it's decentralized, you got thousands of birds, nobody's in charge, they're just flying together. Um, the global behavior of the murmuration is caused by the interaction of the simple local rules of the birds. And the whole of it is greater than the sum of its parts. So there's a difference between a murmuration and a big group of birds. Um, and that difference is kind of the magic of emergence. So to get a picture of that, we're gonna watch a YouTube video for two minutes to just watch some birds, take a brain break. Well, obviously we can't show a YouTube video on our podcast, but in general, to describe what the audience saw, this was a two minute segment of a large flock of birds moving together in a coordinated fashion in the sky, not making obvious shapes, but really like undulating or dancing as a flock together with changes in density of birds in different regions and uh, a fluid movement to them. Hopefully that sets the picture for what the audience experienced and we will turn it back over to Dr. McNamara right now. So those birds are that flock, that like mesmerizing movement of this thousands of birds. That is the emergent phenomenon, that flock. The individual birds are, when you dig into the science of how they do this, they're each following the six or seven birds around them. So if you imagine like a soccer ball around them, they're paying it and they're following three local rules. They're trying to move together in the same general direction. They're trying to stay close enough that they're moving together, but not so close that they bump into each other. And if you actually take a bunch of pixels and, and program them that way in a computer and then throw them in a box in a computer, you will get this flocking behavior. So it's those three simple rules that each bird is following um, that creates these beautiful patterns. Um, and this is true for flocks of birds and schools of fish. So now I've become interested in watching the pigeons that fly in loops around my neighborhood and they absolutely do this. Um, and it's a really beautiful example of kind of something that's not a clock. So, you know, we know how a clock works, these, you know, the, the mousetrap mechanical systems of the world where they're very predictive, predictable and linear and following those Newtonian physics. Um, but then there's the reality that we live in that's very messy and complex and kind of all over the place. And that's more the world that resuscitation is happening in. So you all are a lot more like these birds than you are like a clock. So let's go back to the hospital now. So we've talked about... Um, a little bit about a complex system. We've talked about emergence. Now, if resuscitation is emergent property, and if the resuscitation room is a complex system, then how does that work? So we talked about the paradigm that's not working, but what does work? What do we do next? So that's thinking about principles about how complex systems work. And that's a lot of what safety two is really about. So thinking that knowing that there are many ways to make things work, that one right ideal way, that standard, that's not gonna work in a complex environment. Um, but there are many right ways to make things work. Reality is complex and intractable. Intractable meaning no one person can have all the information about what's happening in the moment. It's just too big. Um, 
we know bad things can happen even when everything's working normally. So you might run the perfect code and the patient might not make it. Um, or you could run a really chaotic code um, where everyone's trying their best, but it's kind of rough and bumpy. And then the patient could do great. Um, so those performance is correlated to outcomes, um, but it's not a one-to-one. -one. It's, it's more flexible than that. And then change is constant. So people constantly have to adapt. So this is the reality we're working in. So safety in that world, safety is thinking about capacity. So what is our capacity to adapt? Um, this is a very key shift in how we're thinking about, about safety. It's less about controlling the behavior of the people in the environment or trying to get as close as we can to that one right way to do things. And it's more about thinking, what is our goal? Where are we going? And how can we get there together when things are going to change um, and we can't know everything that's happening in the moment? So the safety two folks talk about some specific strategies for thriving in complexity and ways that we can um, work to improve safety um, in these systems. So your, your attention is very powerful. So using your attention to look at not just what goes wrong, but also what goes right um, is an important way to improve performance. Um, we wanna focus on frequent events, so not only the serious events. And yes, we should look at the serious events. However, we should look at all the events. Um, so say we had a, a sepsis case with a bad outcome. We wanna look at that case, but we also wanna look at how sepsis cases work across the board. Um, when do they go well? When are they difficult? How do they work? We wanna explore patterns to see how the system functions. And then we wanna adjust the environment to make it easier to do the right thing. So if we know what our goals are and what we're trying to do, instead of trying to get everybody to do it the one right way, we wanna look at our environment and say, okay, if our goal is to, um, if our airway management goals are X, Y, and Z, how do we optimize our environment to make that happen? Um, this is a great graph from the safety two folks where, you know, if you imagine this bell curve of this is everything that happens. Over in the red, we've got the things we don't want to happen. Um, things that go wrong are big accidents. And that's a relative minority of events. Then if we're thinking about most things, most of the times things go right. Um, most of the times it's the outcomes are good. Sometimes it's difficult. Um, sometimes it's um we do, we see excellence or innovation, um, but most of the time things go well. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we've got these positive surprises. So if you think about your big, big saves that um, maybe nobody was expecting and the patient did amazing. And safety two, safety one, that earlier perspective is often thinking just about the red part, only looking at the unwanted outcomes. And safety two is thinking about all the outcomes. So saying, yes, we should investigate accidents. We should learn from adverse events. Absolutely. And one of the best ways to learn from adverse events is to put them in context, to look at how they, how they go with the rest of the more, uh, the more routine elements, how things work, um, what's easy, what's difficult. Um, so really shifting that focus to what went wrong and why did it go wrong to what is happening and how does this work across the board? So this sounds nice in theory, but I'm sure you're wondering if there's any evidence that this actually works. So this is one of my favorite papers. Oh, the screen cut off a little bit. 
there we go. Um, so this is a debriefing paper, but it's not a it's not labeled as safety two, but I think it's a great example of the perspective. So over four years, this hospital debriefed every single surgical case that they did. So over 50,000 cases, they had somebody come at the end of each case and say, hey, how'd it go? Um, what went well? Anything you want me to improve? Or like, what was what was difficult? And then there was a so they found a bunch of errors and they did this more or defects. So they did this more from a let's find what's wrong perspective, but they did every single case and they had someone whose job it was to do rapid cycle iterative changes in care design. So that make it easier to do the right thing. So they found, I think they found some major issues with their med rec system. And so they went back, that kept coming up. So they went back to re-engineer the med rec system. So it worked well. And their results were amazing. They reduced surgical mortality, they lowered costs, they improved er, pr productivity and efficiency, and the staff were happy. They had a better safety climate and people loved that after surgery, they could say, hey, this is broken, can you fix it? And then somebody would fix it. Um, so on the institutional level, this is a great example of using a safety two perspective of looking at everything and asking how it works and then trying to make it easier to do the right thing. Um, but what about if you're not working at the institutional level? What if you're just showing up to your shift? Um, so I did this talk last year um, at the High Performance Team Summit um, and Eve Purdy was there presenting on her work with simulation and anthropology. And she talks a lot about communication rituals. So talking about the shift huddle, the team briefing, an after action review or a post case debrief um, simulation. She talks about how these are small moments that matter in building relational coordination and team culture that are really important for performance improvement. And this made me think about the birds. So if we're thinking about the birds in that murmuration, how are they doing that? And they're just talking to their neighbors. Now, I don't know how they actually do it. Maybe they use magnets or like, um, I don't know how birds talk. But the way people talk, um, you know, we're doing our shift huddles. So maybe at the beginning of a shift, um, the staff's going to huddle up to talk about what's going on that day, or that's, you know, talking about after a resuscitation when we do a debrief. These are those moments where we're coordinating together, where we're talking about where are we going, how is this working, what's next. And those moments are very important in building on our ability to work together to kind of have success with that emergent process of resuscitation. Um, now I wanna also wanna talk about fractals. So um, fractals are a great way to think about power. Um, so if you're just a clinician going in for your shift saying, well, I'm not in charge of the department, what can I do? Um, I think there's tremendous power in resuscitation teams. And I wanna talk about that through the model of fractals. So this is a picture of a, a nice lung 3D recon. Um, so a fractal is a repeating pattern um, and the unit of change in a complex system. So like in your lung or with a tree or with your vascular beds or with a river, you see this a lot where there's this branching pattern and that's optimizing your um, surface area for respiration or diffusion or whatever you're doing. Um, but it's that fractality where it's, you know, one and then two and then three, it's the, it's the branching pattern. Um, so a fractal is a unit um, in a complex system. And I think if we're saying resuscitation is an emergent phenomenon, the whole is bigger than the sum of its parts. The resuscitation teams are the fractal unit of that system. So just like these, I love uh, the snowflake fractals, they're really fun. It's that, that simple local rule, how we behave 
towards one another, how we work with our equipment, how we take care of our patients, how we communicate. Um, those are all ways um, that we form a fractal unit together as a resuscitation team. And there's tremendous potential at that team level for creativity, for adaption, for growth. So this is where a lot of change can happen. So if, you know, if there's a, a new protocol or a new technology, something comes out, like, I think we see it with airway management. So um, all of the new technologies of airway management, those are getting applied in that team setting. So um, video laryngoscopy or using, um, using super, super, uh, um, you know what I'm talking about, the airway devices. You know, that's a new thing. Where is that happening? It's happening at that recess team level. Um, so that's where I put a lot of my energy um, and in trying to optimize the team. How am I talking to my team? How am I calling huddles? How am I debriefing our cases? And, you know, with things like um, in-situ simulation or things like, um, like team debriefing after a recess. Those are incredibly powerful actions because they change things at the team level. And when they're done kind of um, regularly, those can make a huge difference. And what we see with fractals is they repeat. So, you know, a fern is a fractal um, plant made of the same pattern just over and over and over and over again. So if we're debriefing our cases in a way, if, if we're um, putting our energy on those communication rituals and we're putting our energy into how we support one another um, to succeed at resuscitation, we can see really tremendous success. Um, so that's my story. That's our three acts of learning medicine, riding the roller coaster of resuscitation, learning about simulation and safety, um, discovering industrial safety science, um, talking about the gap between the ideal and the real, um, talking about work as done as the only real thing, talking about why things go wrong, why things go right, and performance variability, and then embracing complexity, trying to see things differently as um, we're not an airplane, we're not a clock. Um, we may be a lot more like a mayonnaise or a flock of birds um, than, the, than we had thought. Um, and specific strategies to thrive in complexity. So focusing on that relational coordination, focusing on those small um, moments that matter and um, thinking about our teams as fractals. So some closing thoughts, um, you know, Humans are why systems work, not why they fail. So if we try to do everything by the book, it's not going to work. Um, in this world of constant change and limited resources, humans, we are the ones that use our adaptive capacity to navigate trade-offs wisely to make things work. Um, and that's a huge part of the art of medicine. Um, a closing thought from Sydney Decker, a safety scientist, you can either learn or blame, um, but you can't do both. So you get to choose where you go. Um, and this is a link to the handout and slides. Um, and that is the end of my talk. So thank you very much. I want to open up to questions. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. McNamara. That was wonderful. Um, in the room, just raise your hands. Um, Sue on one side, myself on the other will bring a mic for you. And if you're online, go ahead and unmute and ask your question freely, or you can type it in the chat. Um, Dr. McNamara, can you see the chat if they write a question in there? Um, I think I have to, well, let me oh. see. Otherwise, I might have um, to stop screen sharing. 
Um, no Sue worries. has Sue has the link, so um, yeah. she can share that after. Or maybe uh, Fernanda or someone online, if you could watch the chat and voice questions, that would be awesome. Questions in the room or thoughts, comments. Dr. McNamara, I would say, uh, you know, I, I think back on some of the simulations we've had, especially from our PEDS division, um, to identify team-based uh, opportunities for improvement and um, ways to incorporate the family into resuscitations and things, mm -hmm. and it was so impactful. So much of this literature is coming out of uh, PEDS critical care and PEDS simulation. So either on the, the PICU side or the EM side, um, a lot of really amazing scholarship comes out of that world. They're doing great stuff. We, we do have a question in the chat. It says, um, from John Anderson, how do you drive engagement with these reviews? Um, I'd love to answer the question. I'm not quite sure I understand um, the reviews, maybe engagement with the debriefs. Um, so I'll answer engagement with debriefs. I think the keys are, um, Make it short, make it optional, make it um, non-punitive. So it's focused on learning and then showing that those reviews matter. So I think um, as we saw with the debriefing surgical paper, they got a ton of engagement because when people complained that systems were broken, someone fixed them. So taking that information and making it actionable to improve the care environment is really powerful. John, did that hit your question? Yes, it did. Thank you, Shannon. And I see Jim has a oh. hand up. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you, Dr. McNamara. That was that was a fantastic talk. It really fits my worldview. Um, for background, my brother is a mechanical engineer and is now a quality and safety engineer for a major car company. There you go. When I tell him what we're doing for quality and safety, he laughs and says, people are not cars. You're applying the science wrong. And it is a complex mm -hmm. environment. It's more like how, you know, cars interact in a city street than it is, than it or highway than it is actually the car. And yes. so this is this is why we have problems. We think that it's it's a simple linear mechanical system, but it's a complex environment with many variables that you have to adapt to. And I, I do worry about that about how we've decided to do this is that we have this one size fits all where you can't vary from. And we do need a pathway and some guides and some guidelines, but sometimes you need to figure out what to do when there's no other options. Yeah, it, yeah. it an example, so I, I worked at CHOP as a resident, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, and they have some really amazing guidelines because they've got all these residents rotating and you're taking care of sick kids. Um, so there's a lot of like, this is the pathway and you can use your brain to deviate from the pathway. So there is a foundation and it's flexible because in realizing it's not always going to apply. So how do we make protocols that acknowledge, you know, that middle of the bell curve of how things usually are going to work, but then allowing for adaptivity when we have to do things a little differently? Well Part of the problem is the way we measure intelligence and success is really it's really based on design pathways. But what what happens what happens in resuscitations is adaptation based on the current situation and variables we haven't yet figured out how to identify. Right? I don't know why 
like people like I'll be in a recess I'm looking, I'll tell a resident or a student this is going to happen next and I don't know why that is but it's just pattern recognition after pattern recognition and to intervene early before that happens and the number of times I've said someone they're going to crash in the next 10 minutes if we you know and like you start to resuscitate them you can see it happening it's hard to explain that or plan for that and so there is an element here that that as far as kind of I think it's what type two decision making that we just truly don't understand the, so, um, hands up. He's going to disagree with me. He's going to tell me it's all very linear. Um, there's there's some amazing decision making work, and I'm forgetting yeah. the guy's name. Um, I'll think of it. But it's the, it, it's a different kind of it's the opposite of Kahneman. There's Kahneman stuff, and then there's this other guy that does um, naturalistic decision making. Um, and the world of naturalistic decision making is really interesting as it applies to environments like the recess room. There, there is a parallel and that goes into just in life, you see certain people succeed in certain roles because they're able to adapt. But if you look at like professional coaches, like NFL coaches, major league baseball coaches, the ones who take what they have and use it to the best of their ability and don't follow protocol are the ones who are the most successful, right? Gary Klein, Molly put it in the chat. Thank you. Yeah. But yes, adaptivity is key. Yeah, um, and it's, it's hard, hard to measure, it's hard to teach. Yes. And that uh, another take home from getting buy-in on those debriefings is talking about the trade-offs. So folks that have had experience that that are you know really good at resuscitation, you're making wise trade-offs and how does that work? And teaching around that conversation of, okay, here's a point where we had to make a trade-off. This is how I made that decision or this is how I thought about that. That's really valuable conversation. Um, thank you for your comments, Jim. It looks like Casey has a hand up. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, I, in addition to my role in the ED, I actually run occupational safety for Mayo Clinic and, and we have an ISO 9001 safety management system. So we have a whole staff of certified safety professionals and we talk a lot about safety too. And it's a lot easier in the staff safety and environmental health space to, to, to do safety too. I know that our patient safety folks believe in what you're saying, but I don't know that we've transitioned to being able to respond to safety events in the way that safety two calls for. And, and we're told, well, they don't have resources to monitor, to monitor near misses or to do every, you know, debrief everything. Um, so if you had your, your ideal situation and you could design a patient safety um, system, how would you design that? So instead of doing uh, the RCAs, like you've talked about, you talked about that in two different slides. And I agree with you that, that that's very much my view of how those go. Mm -hmm. um, how would you, how would you undo that? How would you make it something different that you feel serves the complex system and the patient better? Great question. Amazing question. Um, I think it comes back to telling complex stories and doing it regularly. So balancing your inputs. So you need different inputs. So I think of two places where we do this a lot. One is simulation. One is um, those like the M&M meeting, our adverse event meetings. So for a simulation, the model that I think works really well is translational simulation, which is the work um, Vic Brazel writes about. So you're using it, kind of doing in situ sim as like a probe and respond. So like, for example, um, going into a new space and or doing a new protocol and saying, let's do this and let's give input 
to our system of how is this process working on the ground? Like how get, use that simulation as a data gatherer to talk about a process. Um, and then maybe do a different one every month to get more information and tell the complex story of how that's working. And then when we're doing adverse event review, same thing about process. So say we have a really bad um, uh, case of, I don't know, something, sepsis is one. So so if we're, if we're thinking about sepsis and we had a bad case, let's look at that case and try to tell that complex story of what happened, just what happened. Why, what was the timeline? What were the trade-offs that were made? What was going into those decisions? Um, Richard Cook writes some amazing stuff about complex stories in medicine. Um, and then not just looking at that case in isolation, but looking at, okay, let's find 10, 20, 30 similar cases and let's think about how did things usually work um, and what is like what trade-offs are people making and understanding um, how we're making those decisions and what our resources are. So trying to build a more complex picture of what's going on um, and telling those stories more complex with more complexity. So instead of the straightforward like one, two, three, four, then we got to bad thing happened, block out four and everything's fine. Um, what was really going on and what's try to get a more full picture. Um, so those would be two strategies that I think would really help build understanding around what's happening so that resources can be devoted to improve performance in a really practical way. Thank you. And that your work sounds amazing. Good luck. That's, there is a big gap between industrial safety and patient safety. The patient safety world hasn't gotten a lot of this work. Um, and there's a lot of scholarly discourse around safety advocates saying like, why does no one listen to us in patient safety? What's up with that? Um, and I don't have a full answer for that, but there's Bob Ware's work, um, Richard Cook's work are both really excellent um, from physicians who do industrial safety and do apply it. Um, they're really great stuff. We're also behind in, in industrial safety practices in healthcare institutions, not just within patient safety. Um, it, it, the risk profile in healthcare is crazy, weird, and more complex than most of the rest of industry. So thank you. I believe it. Thank you very much, Dr. McNamara. You are definitely inspiring us to elevate our patient safety game, and we are grateful to you. To all of you listening, thank you for tuning in and giving us your time and energy. Before you continue with your day, please take two seconds and follow our show on your platform of choice. And if you happen to have a minute to spare, drop a comment about your experience. You can certainly hit us up on our X feed, formerly known as Twitter, or use Instagram at alwaysonem is our handle on both platforms, or email us at alwaysonem at gmail.com. Be sure to come back September 1st to catch our next episode. And to the parents whose kids are heading back to school soon, I hope all goes well for you and your kiddos. And in the United States, Labor Day is around the corner, so have fun and stay safe. To the people of the Hawaiian Islands who are working to overcome the wildfires, our hearts and our love is with you. I'm really sorry you're faced with this challenge, and we're all thinking of you. Globally, Alex and I really care for each of you. So until the next episode... Peace out. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. 